Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at cclo.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Revelation 15. Yeah, we go from trick-or-treating now to the tribulation, right? Nice little segue right into there. Dress up like demons, the wrath of God. Sorry. So we're continuing our study. And if you remember the last few weeks from chapters 10 to 14 was all parenthetical, all filling in the blanks and just different details of what is going on. And it's hard to even put chronology to that. So give you a prime example. If you look at chapter 14, verses 14 to 20, the first little paragraph, 14 to 16, that's the kind of the real life living out of the wheat and the tares if you remember that parable of Jesus, or if you hear him in Matthew 25 talking about how when he appears in his glory, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. That's what's happening there. But then in 17 to 20, that's the seventh stage of Armageddon, where he's going from Basra all the way to the Mounts of Olives. And so even though John's writing it one thing after the other, we can't put a time chronology kind of stamp on it. He's just filling in the blanks. But now into 15, He's kind of getting back on track, and he's setting the stage as we're moving, you know, the timetable forward. And again, on this seven years of tribulation, this seven-year period, very specific, and we'll talk about why do we study it if we don't believe that we're going to be a part of it, but Revelation 15, let's read it first. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. This isn't the start of the wrath of God. This is the finishing of the wrath of God. In verse 2, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Same song, two different titles, saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And after this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So we got eight verses this morning, which means we're going to get out early. Nope, we're not. Okay, here we go. (laughs) So we start, we're, we're looking now at the last kind of three and a half years of tribulation. 
And what's kind of difficult about this, there was actually a lot more details that are given to us in the first three and a half. And now, next week in chapter 16, we're going to go right through all of the bowls right there, and it's just going to end pretty quick. And I think there was more details on the front end so that in the last three and a half years, with the fullness of God's wrath, that would be the focus. That he already filled in all the parenthetical information that we needed so that when we get to this point, where it's not the wrath of God affecting a fourth as it was in the seals, it's not the wrath of God affecting a third as it was in the trumpets. This is the fullness of the wrath of God. And, and not to be distracted with any other parenthetical info, we need to focus here. And as Christians, we can really kind of struggle a little bit thinking about the wrath of God. Like the wrath of God, like we serve a wrathful God. We don't like that idea sometimes. We want the loving God. We want the Jesus that sits on the grassy plain, petting sheep. You know, we want that nice, soft Jesus. But a wrathful God? There's even whole churches. They'll take some of these uh, great old hymns that'll talk about the wrath of God, and they remove one of the lines from it that talks about that the wrath of God is satisfied. The song is In Christ Alone. That we love that. We love the idea that our salvation is found in Christ alone. But when you remove the wrath of God from the concept of who he is, we dilute the cross. We dilute the atonement. Because it's not just that Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and pay for its consequences, but God has wrath towards sin. God hates sin sin, and he has a wrath for it. And if we try to remove the wrath of God from the cross, which sometimes there's some eschatology that wants to look at the end times and say that there's really not a whole lot of wrath of God. There's not a seven years where God needs to pour out his wrath. It's all just going to end in one event. You know, Jesus just comes back and ties it all up in a pretty bow, and there's no discussion of the wrath of God. But if you dilute the cross of the wrath of God, then it can be easily to dilute the end where he's pouring out his wrath. Because, you know, Romans talks about this. First John talks about Christ is our, in the, in the big fancy word here, propitiation. Right? It took me like three years just to learn to pronounce it. But it means that God pouring out his wrath on Christ on the cross that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. So when we put our faith and our trust in him and, and our sin is put on him, that wrath was poured out on our sin and Jesus satisfied that. That's why in 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes again that we as the church are not destined for the wrath of God that is to come. Why? Because it was paid for on the cross. But if we don't serve a wrathful God, then we dilute the cross down to this like VBS Kool-Aid style where it looks red and, and bright, but it has no flavor or power whatsoever. And I think the other reason we try to dilute God from his wrath and his hatred towards sin is because we don't have a hatred towards our own sin. See, another thing that the church, broad brush, capital C, not just Calvary, but we're not immune to it, is we're real quick to want to talk about everybody else's sin. 
And we want to talk about the sin of a broken, lost world that doesn't even know Jesus. But we're real slow to want to talk about our own. That it's so much easier to point it out in everybody else. But we don't want to hold up the mirror of God's word and look at our own heart and mind and see the sin that is so infecting our very own lives. Why would we want that? And a lot of times we do it because we think, well, I'm not that bad. Look at all these heathens out there and the things that they're doing. I'm a good, upstanding, moral person. I've never been arrested. Or if I have, it was a long, long time ago, and we don't talk about that anymore. And, and look at all the religious activity that I do. And I even throw a couple dimes in the black boxes. And so, of course, I'm going to heaven. And we start stacking all this religious activity, thinking that that's going to bring about the righteousness of God. And it doesn't. The only thing that brings about the righteousness of God is faith and trust in him. And we have to acknowledge our own sin. And we, taking a playbook out of of God, we need to have that same wrath towards our sin. Not each other's sin. Our sin. And that's a hard concept. Because a lot of times we don't want to talk about that. We want to act like we're the, if you remember Jesus talking about the Pharisee, And the sinner, the publican that was praying, and the Pharisee stood up and said, thank you, Lord, for not making me like all these sinners here. And look at all these good things that I do. And the sinner just stood in the back, beat his chest, which is a sign of grief, and he couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. Make sure you're the sinner in the story and not the Pharisee. And, and as we walked through 1 John, it, it told us that uh, if anyone thinks that he is without sin, he's a liar. So we need to have God's heart. We need to have his eyes, how he views sin. We need to look at our sin that same way. We need to have that same wrath. And I think why we want to try to dilute God of his wrath is because we don't want to deal with our sin the same way. Because how could God hate something so much that we love? See, a lot of us treat our sin like it's the family pet, right? You name it. You pet it every once in a while. You feed it. You get mad at it and kick it. Or that's just me, right? Some days you love it, some days you want to get rid of it, and it's just the family pet. And we try to, we talked about it last week or the week before, we try to normalize our sin. Oh yeah, Nick, nobody's perfect. We all have our struggles. Is that what Jesus said from the cross? No. So we need to quit normalizing our sin. We need to quit having it as our family pet. We need to have God's view, God's heart towards our own sin. There needs to be a little bit of a wrath in us towards it because that's merely just plugging into God's view of sin and we hold it within tension because we understand the grace of God and again it's not an outwardly focused uh, ministry of the church like we're not going to build a wrath team and we're going to go around and just scream at people and tell them to repent and turn away and and if any of you went to the apple festival you probably saw that guy holding his sign, telling us to repent. The wrath of God's gonna be poured out. No, we're called to go and give grace. We were never called to go and preach the wrath of God, but to preach the gospel. But we also understand the tension of his grace, that if it is rejected, 
his wrath remains. And so here Paul jumps into this for us to see this is how it ends. This is the finishing. This is the last of it. Not the beginning of his wrath, but this is the last of the wrath of God. And it says, for with them, the seven plagues, the wrath of God is finished. In the original language, it's that word tetelestai, which we love. Some of you even have it tattooed on you. And amen, you should. Because that's what Jesus said from the cross. He said, it is finished. But what was finished? Satisfying the wrath of God for our sin. That he paid the debt that we owed. It is finished. It's beautiful words from the cross. But we will hear these again when the seven angels pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath. That it is finished. There's going to be an end and an accomplish, a reaching the aim is another word you could use there. Because there's an eternal purpose in God fulfilling his plan. This is his plan. It's his will according to his timetable, and it's his wrath. We merely trust and surrender what he is doing with the culmination of human history. And we know that the whole story of the Bible is him when he created heaven and earth and we ripped it apart through our sin. He's bringing heaven and earth back together. He's reuniting that. And he's a gentleman. So you are allowed and permitted to be a part of that process or he will, and he gives us the free will or you can say, you know what? I don't want to be a part of that. I reject what you are doing. You have the free will for that. But God will not allow his good creation to be infected by sin any longer, that he is going to bring a finish to it. And we love that. That's one of the greatest things we love about heaven is that we won't experience sin and pain and hurt and grief anymore, that he will wipe away every tear. But how does he do that? He's going to pour out his wrath on sin and bring it to an end, as Daniel tells us. When Daniel gave us that prophecy, he said he's going to bring an end to sin and he's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. We love that until we study the tribulation. This is his plan. It's his will. It's his eternal purpose. And this is what he is doing. The invitation to every one of us is that we can be a part of that and we get to be just merely uh, co-laborers with God as he is working in the hearts of those around us that so we get to preach the gospel and invite them into a relationship with Jesus. We sit in the tension of the bittersweet of what we are saved to and what we are saved from. And we're saved from the wrath of God. Or either we get to be a part of that or he will allow us. I don't want to be a part of that. And he will permit you to walk away from his plan and his eternal desire to bring an end to sin. But there is consequences for that. And, and not to be so naive to think that every one of us in here are saying absolutely yes to Jesus. That every one of us, our choices matter. Our lives matter. And what we do with our life matters if we live in faith and trust in Jesus, that will have an eternal consequence to it for the positive. Or if we continue to walk in rejection of him 
and we just want to stack our righteous acts up thinking that I'm going to earn my way. We're going to be sadly mistaken. I think it's actually one of the hardest places to do ministry is in the Midwest. You know, we look at things that are happening in California or we see things that are happening on the coast or even in Canada and it's like, how, how could they ever get along and do church? And it's almost feeling like they're being persecuted like a China or something like that. But here in the Midwest, we have some friends that have moved from California and they've come here and they're trying to do ministry. And they said, it's actually really hard because everybody thinks they're saved because they have a toe in the pool of the church. Oh, I grew up Christian. Yeah, my grandparents used to take me. And then, yeah, we'd sit there at Christmas and Easter. We'd go a couple other times. You know, mom on Mother's Day, she'd make us go. And so, oh, yeah, I grew up Christian. But then you talk about putting your faith and your trust in Jesus, and they look at you like you're awkward. And so we're prone to try to just stack righteous activity, religious activity, thinking that that's going to bring about the righteousness of God. Do not be mistaken. It is salvation by grace through faith alone that we are saved. And as he carries out his plan, as we talked about last week, there is and there will be a last call of grace for every one of us either in the time frame of our own lives or on the landscape of human history, we know that salvation will not be available to all forever, that he is bringing an end to this. And that's one of the beautiful things that we love about God is that he is patient, that even while this world is just plaguing his good creation, and not just the world, but that's a part of it. The world groans, Roman tells us, because of sin. But even us, that sin is plaguing us, his good creation. And why is he so patient? Why is he waiting so long and holding back his wrath? Because at the same time, those are coming to faith in Jesus. But there will come a day where it will not be his patience and his forbearance. It'll be our reality. And so we are seeing this wrath of God that is going to be finished up in these seven plagues, talking about the seven bowls of God's wrath. And and, and in this chapter, in these eight short verses, you're going to see John kind of write with an allusion to the Old Testament. If you know around Easter time, they always play on TV the Ten Commandments. Let my people go. That's my best Charleston Heston right there. That's all I got. That, like, that's as good as it's getting. And we watch that, and it's, and it's good. I love it every time. Now, if you read the Bible and you watch that, you're going to be in some conflict, right? There's some creative liberties that they have, so don't hold too fast. You know, if that actor is like your standard of uh, theology, you're, you're going to be in some conflict with the Word of God. That's a movie, and this is the one time I will agree with my wife that the book is better than the movie, right? Normally, I like the movie over the book, but this time, I'm going with the book on this one. But you're going to see a few of those pointings back to the Exodus, and I think there's a couple reasons for it. One, this is, this is still a Jewish story that we're a part of. This is still what God is doing, not just through the landscape of human history, but even in the fulfillment of Israel. 
And the whole Exodus story that we can read about there in that second book of the Bible is almost a, a forward pointing, a type of the fullness of what God is doing. And so you'll see even, again, another little allusion to it. Verse 2, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. So there is this Red Sea, that they are standing around, that those who had conquered the beast, you know, after that battle that went down, they're standing around with their harps and just, you know, worshiping. That's what you do after a good battle, you just sing about it. And this is that Red Sea kind of moment for them, which we'll kind of see where if you go back to the story of the Exodus, when they, Israel, when God parted the Red Sea and they walked through that on dry land, that was a salvation unto them, but it was a judgment to Egypt because obviously we know once all of Israel had went through and Egypt pursued them, he brought the waters back over. And we're going to see that very similar type thing, the very thing that to us is salvation is going to be a judgment to them. And that's Christ himself, that he is a salvation unto us that have put our faith and our trust in him, but it will be a judgment to those that have rejected him and don't want anything to do with that offer of salvation and a relationship with him. And so we see this allusion to the Red Sea in a deliverance from bondage. In the Old Testament, it was Israel out of Egypt as slaves, but the bondage that we will be redeemed from, not just the presence and the power of sin, but merely the, the fullness of it. That yes, Christ accomplished that for us on the cross, but now in its actuality that we will have that, again, the thing that makes heaven, heaven in the presence of God. And we will not suffer and endure pain and sin any longer, but we will be redeemed from that bondage. And you hear that those who had conquered the beast, right? So we love a good movie, a good story where you just take down those that are causing injustice. We like when righteousness prevails. We're going to see it on an eternal level talking about this beast, but who conquers him? Those who conquered the beast. It's a reference to the tribulation saints. And we would want to think that it's going to be this group of people that put their faith in Jesus during the tribulation, and they're going to get their you know, swords and pickaxes and whatever weapons they'll have available to them, and they're going to take out the beast, and they're going to conquer him. You know, that's like a nice, good, like Mel Gibson type of movie right there. We're going to conquer the beast, like a Braveheart type of moment. But the problem is, is it doesn't say that they survive the beast. It says that they conquer the beast. They overcome him. That there is going to be a victorious moment over the beast. So what's the reference? How are they going to conquer the beast? See, the early church consistently described the day of martyrdom, which was very normal to them, Almost, could you imagine us gathering every week and being like, oh, yeah, Sean didn't make it this week. He was martyred. Wow. He, he had his day of victory is what they called it. And we'll gather back again for another, you know, next week and be like, oh, yeah, I got to let you guys know, Austin, he didn't make it. He was martyred. That was the normal as the church gathered together because they were just consistently living out their faith in their everyday normal life under the threat of persecution, but they consistently described that day that they were martyred as a day of victory. 
See, that's how they conquered the beast. And every one of us has a day of victory before us. It's our death. It's our death and resurrection. The whole reason that, you know, Jesus, Good Friday, died on the cross. And all of us will have a Good Friday. And we will die. But if Jesus had a resurrection Sunday, so will we. And you hear a guy like Paul that talks about, has that kind of, not just that theological stance, but he had that down in like a rubber meets the road, street level, impacting his everyday life. And he even writes about it in Philippians. I think it's like 121. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Because he knew, that's my day of victory. Like, how could, you, how could you mess with a guy like that? You know, like, Paul, if you don't quit preaching the gospel, we're going to beat you. Really, you're going you're gonna to beat me and treat me just like you treated the Lord. You would find me worthy of that. Paul, if you don't quit preaching the gospel, we're going to kill you. Really? And you would send me to be with my Lord, that you would take me to my day of victory. You would do that for me. All right, we'll put you on house arrest. We don't know what else, you know. <laughs> like, just don't tell the gospel. And, it, and he continues to do so. Because his faith in Christ was greater than any other threat that was before him. That there was nothing that the world and the enemy could throw at him that would make him let go of that promise of that day of victory. Because he knew, as the old hymn says, there's victory in Jesus. That's where we overcome. It has always been the righteous man shall live by faith, and I believe the righteous man shall die by faith. And can you imagine some of the things, like when you go back and you study church history and some of the reasons that uh, in the church, we're not even talking about like the Crusades. Just talk about it self-inflicted. Some of the reasons that Normal Christians, just like me and you, just like Paul. Paul didn't get a super dose of the Holy Spirit. He didn't get like a dose and a half, and we're all sitting here at like of a you know, quarter teaspoon. No, just another believer walking by faith in Jesus. And you study church history, and you see some of these guys that are just like you and me. And the reason that they were killed for their faith, yesterday, isn't it right, seventh? Yeah, I think it was on the sixth or the seventh, I think it was Tyndale, was killed for his faith. And you know why they killed him? This scallywag of a guy? Because he translated the Bible into English. So all of us are reading this this morning because one guy held his day of victory and he held the threat against him. And he said, I'm going with Jesus on this. And so we see these tribulation saints that we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. We know it's pretty much going to be hell on earth. But they're going to keep their eyes focused on Christ. They're going to have their day of victory. That victory is in Jesus because whatever else is going to be thrown at them, they're going to know to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so as they're around this Red Sea, they're going to bust out their harps and we're going to sing a little song, Song of Moses. And the song of the lamb. It's the same song, but it has two different names. So you're seeing it here at the end of verse three. Great and amazing are your 
deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, the King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Where was the focus in the center of that song of worship? It's on God, on his character, on him alone. And not to have the bigger conversation about worship in the church today, but it definitely needs to be had. Where is the center of our worship? Is it on Christ alone or is it ourself? And so many times, you, you, I've been in ministry long enough and I've heard it. People walk out of the church after a, a service like this and they're like, ah, that worship just didn't do it for me. Good. It wasn't for you. And actually, we would still do it if none of you showed up because it wasn't for you. Even the title, uh, worship leader, not my favorite, that everyone that stands on this stage needs to lead in worship not a worship leader. You need to lead. If you're not worshiping here, how could we ever lead the congregation in the same? If anything, the worship leaders that come up and lead us saying, you know what? I'm going to the altar. I'm throwing myself before the feet of Jesus and I hope you come with me. And our worship needs to be focused on the person, the character, the being of who God is, what he has done for us. And I think there's been a shift in the church that we want to move worship away from the person of God and we want to land it on the heart of man. How sad that we don't find enough value and worth in Christ alone to worship him. And, and, and let's talk about it on the other side, right? So let's, let's be mean to the other side of the spectrum. Been in ministry long enough, have a couple old guys every once in a while, they'll roll up on me and be like, I don't even need worship. I just want the word preached and the word alone. And they'll say it like that too, like they're Clint Eastwood or something. Like, get out of here. And it sounds super righteous. Sounds really good. Oh, I just need the word and the word alone. Just preach it there, pastor. It's like, you're gonna hate heaven. Right, like if you just want the preaching, you're going to hate heaven because that that bad boy's a long, awesome worship service. I mean, how many times have we been reading through Revelation, and every time that God the Father or the Lamb or something happens, do the elders just fall down in worship? So we need both. There's something about worship that the music and the melody grabs our hearts and, and not just prepares our hearts for the word, and that's a part of it, but even ministers to us. And even while we're in this transition, we're looking for our worship pastor, I will say publicly, I think our worship team has absolutely been stepping up and fulfilling very well, leading us as a congregation to the throne of God. And so whoever we bring on, I hope you understand that we... We're going after Jesus, and that's what worship needs to be. And so we need to be preparing our hearts. We need to understand the, the need for worship. I mean, because a lot of times we're going to be like, oh, I'm a manly man. I don't need worship. David was a warrior. Saul killed his thousands. David killed his ten thousands. And he also could pick up a harp and worship the Lord. And so we sit at kind of two ends of the spectrum that I think both are unhealthy, where in the church it's all about just the word and we never want to worship God. 
And the other side is it's all about worship and we don't need the word of God, which is super scary because they're not going to like heaven either. Oh, all the worship. And then Jesus is going to stand up who is the living word of God. Like, why is he going to talk? Really? We just need to do another little, do the bridge nine more times. Come on, that was so good. No, we need both. And so we're seeing this group worshiping, and you hear this song of Moses, song of the Lamb, and one commentator put it well, that it's a perfect union of the old covenant and the new covenant together. Because no matter where we are at in Scripture, it is always pointing to Jesus. No matter where we're at in Scripture, it's always pointing to Jesus. There was one old pastor back in the 1800s. He said, no matter where you're preaching at in the Word, you take that passage, you circle around it, and you run straight to the cross. That it's always been, it always has been, it always will be about Jesus. And so that true heart of worship is going to be seen in this song, that it's focused on him. Psalm 115 verse 1 says, not to us. This was made into a song we used to sing in my early days of my faith. Not to us, O Lord, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And so the worship here, it is not to us. It is not for us. It is to him. It is to his name. It is to his love and his faithfulness. That is the true heart of worship. And so we as the church, as this group is focusing on God and who he is and what he's done, the same needs to be for the church. That we're not going to use the pulpit for any other reason than to focus us on the person of Jesus. And it's one of, the, one of the struggles of our family as a Calvary Chapel that I'm having. I'm just going to be off, honest with you. That sometimes you'll sit in congregations and you'll hear more about what is happening politically in our country or around the world. So let's talk about it. Like right now my heart is grieving for Israel and I stand with Israel and I make no apologies about it. And I pray for them and the attacks that they are under. But to use any of the pulpit to give my political forwarding for it and have less and less of the word of God, nobody cares what I think. We, we are just messengers, we're just trumpets of his grace, his mercy, his love, and his truth. And, and we need a reformation of sorts that we get back to the word of God that it needs to be focused on him and him alone. And it's not just what we do on Sundays, but in our everyday normal life. Are we preaching the gospel even to ourselves? Or do we let the insecurities of our world take over? Is the, the worries of the world choking out the word of God in our life? Is the fear of what other people would say of us overtaking our heart and our faith in Jesus? Have we lost the concept that there's victory? Because as we talked, I think it was last week or the week before, we're fighting from victory, not for victory. And I think one of the biggest schemes of the enemy for us in the church is to try to convince us that we do not have victory in Jesus. And there's so many times we operate thinking that that I'm too far gone, that his grace is no longer sufficient. 
and he doesn't love me. And we struggle and we wonder, where is God in my life? He's never left you. Not to us, but we give glory to his name for the sake of his steadfast love. Don't smear the character of God because of our emotional insecurity. It's his steadfast love, and he is faithful, even when we are faithless. He remains faithful. So we focus on him. And then in verse 7, you're going to hear these seven bowls. So one of the uh, four living creatures is going to hand each angel a bowl. And sometimes you'll hear people talk about this part of Revelation. They call them vials, and that's fine. They're not vials. That's not the proper word for it. And I think there's a reason it's a bowl. Again, this is, uh, this is all ending of Jewish roots. Like everything, we talked about the altar of incense. We're going to see a couple other things that are very Jewish. A Jewish person would see these bowls and understand fully what they're from. And so instead of a vial, like if you're in science class in chemistry or whatever, it's a, it's a broad, flat bowl. And its design was so that the contents were quickly, easily, and completely poured out, right? Unlike when you get like a shake or something and you want that like last two bites of it and you're just like smacking the bottom of the cup. And you know, these were created. These were made so that the contents were easily, quickly, completely poured out, that the wrath of God will be completely poured out. If you remember last week we read, it was at Psalm 75 that says it's going to be drained down to the dregs, to the, just to the little particles at the bottom of it. Like we're not, we're not going to hold back a drop of it. It's all going to be poured out. Not, not a fourth of it like it was in the seals. Not a third are going to be affected like in the trumpets, but all. That this is the fullness of the wrath of God poured out completely. These were the same kind of bowls that were used in the temple. When you talk about like the fire of incense, they would hold fire and that's where they would burn incense on it. And so any Jewish person, if they saw these angels with these bowls or any kind of picture of that, they would know absolutely what that was. And God pouring out this fiery wrath on the world easily, quickly, and completely. Like it's almost kind of hard because we don't really have a, a hard time frame in the last three and a half years at how quickly, you know, is one bowl and then we got like two months and another bowl. They're going to be quickly, easily, completely poured out on a sinful, broken, Jesus-rejecting world. And then you see that the sanctuary was filled with smoke and the glory, from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary. So if you go back to verse 6, or verse 5, it says, After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness was opened. Right? That's the same word tent is tabernacled. Tabernacle. So it's taking us again back to the Exodus story where Moses leads Israel out of Egypt. And instead of going in the promised land like they were supposed to, and that was an act of disobedience there, a lack of faith, they wander the wilderness for 40 years. And in doing that, God has them build his tent, a dwelling for him, so that his presence would be with Israel and lead and guide. That was the center of of Israel as a whole nation, everything was centered on this tabernacle. And they 
And so we see, uh, can you imagine being that? So you come out of Egypt, and then all of a sudden, at some point, Moses stands up, and he's like, all right, we got to build a tent because the presence of God wants to dwell with us. Like, how amazing. Yes, absolutely. And all of Israel is giving up of their time, their treasure, their talent to build this tabernacle because the presence of God, his Shekinah glory that's been leading us, cloud by day, fire by night, it's going to dwell with us. And this is going to be his tent. Absolutely. And we see that this sanctuary is opened and, and it filled with smoke because of the glory of God and from his power. So if you want to hold here, let's go back to Exodus. Ex- Exodus chapter 40. Now, I'm not a, uh, a big betting man, uh, nor do I think we should bet on certain things in the church, right? Could you imagine that? Like, oh, underground betting scheme going on at Calvary. But all of us, you know, most of us have tried, um, and, and let's just be honest, we've most likely have all failed at some point. We try to do that whole Bible in a year plan, right? I do pretty good through Genesis when I was younger in my faith. You get to Exodus, and it's like, oh, yeah, I remember the movie and the stories. That's kind of cool. And then you get to the building of the tabernacle, and I get sleepy. And you miss a few days, and then you feel like a loser. Right? Then so you're reading like nine days of Bible reading so you can catch up, you know, because you don't want to feel like a bad Christian, and this is the shame and the guilt, and, and then you just kind of give up. And it's like, I'm sure that's exactly what God wanted when he gave us his word like, oh, they're going to get behind on a day, and then I'm going to make them feel horrible. The problem is, is we're reading not to be changed or impacted. We're reading to try to finish. To take it even further, we're reading because our own pride. That's a whole other thing. And so you get to this part in Exodus, and they start building the tabernacle, and it can get a little redundant. It's like, okay, a lot of gold, a lot of people, what. And if I would have known this earlier in my faith when I was trying to read that, it really is an interesting study. Looking at the building of the tabernacle, which is normally kind of like uh, a shredded wheat part of the Bible, right? Not even with the frosting on it, like just straight shredded wheat, like a brick of wheat. It's like, all of those things point to Jesus. How it was built, the things that were in it, all of those pointed to Jesus, and so as you're reading through and, and say, okay, how is this pointing? That's a really cool study. And it's a different way to frame it. But they get done. They build all of this. They set it all up. And then if you'll see at the very end, Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord, the glory of Yahweh, filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Very similar to what we just read here in Revelation, that the same kind of way that we're going to see this tent, this tabernacle, and it's going to be filled with the glory of the Lord. but there's actually one more tabernacle in Scripture. John 1, 14. That he came and dwelt among us. That word dwelt means tabernacled. So as we're talking about the, the word of God, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus took on this tent of flesh so that we could see the glory of God. Let's read it so we're 
not just taking my word for it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So even in the very beginning, God's heart was to dwell with his people. And we see this allusion into Revelation where we have this like ultimate exodus. But that is only made possible because of Jesus who tabernacled among us, that we could see the glory of God. Now, not in a temple that we, couldn't, that we could not enter into, but in a person that says, come to me. I mean, think about that. Like when they built that tabernacle, the glory of the Lord, they wanted, they had reverence for it. They wanted to stay apart from it. Like if you walked into that presence in an unworthy manner, in an unclean manner, you would just die. But now we have the glory of the Lord tabernacled with us in the person of Jesus. And he says, come to me. Come to me. If you are burdened, if you're weary, if you're hurting, if you're grieving, come to me. And so we, we see this, again, allusion back to the Exodus that is showing this redemption of Israel out of Egypt and out of the bondage of being slaves. But this is the greater Exodus because we are redeemed out of a sinful, broken world. Where Exodus is the story of God's grace in the Old Testament, but we see the fullness of it here at the end of Revelation because God is bringing in new heaven, new earth, and a new Jerusalem. That he is redeeming us out of this. So let it be the Old Testament saint, let it be the church saint, let it be the tribulation saint, whatever dispensation that we, by faith in God, are saved in. Salvation has always been by faith. The goal, the purpose, is as God is reuniting heaven and earth, that the invitation for us to be a part of what he is doing. And not only as one that just sits and experiences it, but he invites us to go and invite others to be a part of God's story. And so we, not stepping out in our own will, might, desires, merely plugging into what God is already doing and inviting those to be a part of God's story and reuniting heaven and earth and redeeming us, not from Egypt, but the bondage of sin, the presence of sin, the power of sin, the penalty of sin, that we get to walk in new life. And not just this side of glory, but that side of glory as well, that there will be a time where there is no more pain, death, and sin. And God, through pouring out his wrath upon the world, again, we'll study in more detail next week in chapter 16, as he's pouring out his wrath, it is that refining fire for us, a very thing that is a, is a salvation unto us, but a judgment unto the world. And so I just ask, have you put your faith and your trust in Jesus? And then even us as those that have and put our faith and our trust in him and we are walking with Christ what sin issue do we need to quit naming and feeding and treating it like the pet? What sin issue do we need to have the heart and the eyes of God 
and have wrath towards. Because either sin will, either we're killing sin or sin will be killing us. And those things are keeping us disconnected from our Lord and Savior. All of us have it, pastor included. I encourage you, understand the wrath of God. It's beautiful because at the same time, he extends his grace to us. Put your faith and your trust in him, not just unto salvation, but also your faith and your trust in him for that sanctifying process to create us to be more like him, knowing one day that we will have that future glorification where there is no longer the presence, the penalty, and the power of sin in our life.